If you have a Bible, then please turn it open with me to Matthew chapter 13. If you don't have a Bible, please grab the ones around you. I think you'll be helped in this next portion of our service to follow along and see God's Word here in Matthew 13. It's page 818 in the Black Bibles around you. As you're turning there and getting settled, I would like to tell you a short snippet of a very interesting, poetic, artistic movie I watched recently. The movie's called Tree of Life by Terrence Malick. It is a very difficult movie to describe in some ways, but the scene that I'd like to portray to you is about a mom who has three boys, and the mom is at home taking care of things, the doorbell rings, she answers the door. She receives some sort of letter, telegram of some sort. She opens up the letter, and as soon as she's done reading it, she just weeps, just uncontrollably weeps and cries. The next scene is her husband, who's off at work, and he receives a phone call. And it's one of those things where you can't even hear what's being said. There's a lot of noise going on in the background of his job. And you can tell he's hearing the same news that his wife just heard, and his face drops. Then the movie switches to exploding supernovas, like stars, galaxies. It starts to show you the very beginning of creation in the cosmos. So I'll show you all these beautiful pictures from NASA. There's even this little scene with CGI dinosaurs. And this goes on for 30 minutes. If you have ears to hear what I'm telling you now, then why don't you take a few minutes, take some time, think about it. Is it just me, or is anyone wondering what's going on with today's sermon? I didn't want to just read the story to you. I wanted you to feel it. What we just went through was my Phil modern illustration of what I think it would have been like to experience Matthew chapter 13. If you look down in Matthew chapter 13, verse 1, 
you'll notice that Jesus is now around a bunch of people. And there's water, and there's a boat, and Jesus, with all of these great crowds gathered around him, gets into a boat, sits down as the crowd stood on the beach. And then he told them a story about a farmer. And he said a farmer started sowing some seeds, some fell on the ground, and it got plucked up. Some seeds fell on some rocky soil, didn't last very long. Some seeds fell into some good soil, but then some weeds choked it out. Finally, a last seed, it grew an abundance, like on a miracle kind of growth. And then he says, if you have ears to hear, let him hear. He's done. Like, that's the sermon. It's as if I would have came up here and not walked back up again and said, Adam, what are you doing? Come back up. It's time to do our closing songs. Jesus has the opportunity to make the gospel really clear with a great crowd. Imagine being invited to some sort of huge assembly hall, some sort of theater or some sort of grand stadium, and there's thousands upon thousands of people, and they say, Pastor Phil, we want you to go preach. And imagine I go up and I preach some sort of abstract, weird story like the one I just told you from the movie Tree of Life. By the way, that movie is really challenging to follow. It's so abstract modern art. I thought it was a perfect illustration if you've ever seen it, and if you've not, it's going to be hard to get through because you're going to get to that point of the movie that I told you where it seems like, okay, I'm sort of following, somebody just died, and mom and dad are both really sad, and then all of a sudden it is 30 minutes straight of no vocals, no dialogue, no people, and just creation scenes. I read an article at one point that said when the movie came out into the theaters, tons of people just walked out at that point. Like, seriously? What in the world is going on with this thing? Terrence Malick is doing a little bit of what Jesus is doing. The opening of that movie is a quotation from Job. Where were you when the foundations of the earth were laid? Terrence Malick is poetically and beautifully describing in some sort of artistic but very hard to understand form the story and message of Job that we have in our Bibles. It's a metaphor. It's a parable. And it's hard to follow. And there's moments where you don't just give up and be like, that's just not for me. Give me an easy plot line to follow. Give me a clear storyline. And please, a happy ending. So this is why I shared that story with you and why I want you to experience the parables of Jesus. Before we dive into this chapter, as a church, we've been going through the gospel according to Matthew. It's the first book that you'll find in what's called the New Testament or the New Covenant. The word testament is Latin for covenant. Matthew is telling us a biography, if you want to put it that way very simply, of the man named Jesus, Jesus of Nazareth, where his family is from, born in Bethlehem. We find those stories in the early chapters. We get a long gap after his childhood into his 30s, where the Holy Spirit comes upon him like a dove. 
he is then commissioned and he starts preaching the good news of the kingdom of God. On any ordinary day, if you were to be around Jesus, he'd be healing people and he'd be talking about the kingdom of God. And so far in Matthew's gospel, we've seen 12 chapters of this. And if you look back into chapter 12, read it over or refresh your memory, what we saw was opposition is growing against the teaching of Jesus. So when we get to Matthew chapter 13, a giant shift has taken place. So much so that if you drop your eyes down to verse 34, it says, All these things Jesus said to the crowds in parables. Indeed, he said nothing to them without a parable. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet. I will open my mouth in parables. I will utter what has been hidden since the foundation of the world. Jesus preaches parables. And there's a whole section of them here in Matthew 13. That's all it is. Seven different parables. Thankfully, we're given some explanation and some discussion as to why Jesus uses parables. And that's what we're going to start with today, even though verses 1 through 9 would be the natural place to start as we're opening up this chapter. We're going to jump forward to verses 10 through 17, and we're going to introduce this chapter by looking at these verses and answer the question that Jesus has asked. Why? Why is Jesus using parables now, and was he not doing as much before, and then from this point forward, he's only going to speak in parables, or ever increasingly so. So follow along as I read Matthew chapter 13, verses 10 through 17. Then the disciples came and said to him, why do you speak to them in parables? And he answered them, to you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been given. For to the one who has, more will be given, and he who will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. This is why I speak to them in parables, because seeing they do not see, and hearing they do not hear, nor do they understand indeed in their case The prophecy of Isaiah is fulfilled that says, You will indeed hear, but never understand. You will indeed see, but never perceive. For this people's heart has grown dull, and with their ears they can barely hear, and their eyes they have closed, lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand them with their heart and turn, and I would heal them. But blessed are your eyes, for they see, and your ears, for they hear. For truly I say to you, many prophets and righteous people longed to see what you see and did not see it, and to hear what you hear and did not hear it. To help you make your way through this passage and this introduction to chapter 13, we're going to focus on three questions about parables. What are parables? Why use parables? Especially why does Jesus use them? And what do parables ultimately reveal, since this is part of Jesus' answer about the why? So let's first begin with what are parables? And we're going to answer this by saying what they're not, to hopefully just clear out whatever sort of baggage you've come into this room. If you've grown up in church or heard about parables, my guess is if you heard something along these lines. Parables are good teaching illustrations. False. 
They are not good teaching illustrations. They can be a good illustration, but that's primarily not what they are. I like teaching illustrations. I use them as a pastor quite often. One of my favorites is, how do I grow as a Christian and God grows in me, but at the same time, I know I need to do something. You guys ever felt that dynamic? Like, I know it's not just, I just sit around and pray, and then God just grows me more like Jesus. That's nowhere in the Bible. It seems like I'm supposed to do something. But then on the other hand, it seems like God keeps saying he's going to do something in me through the actions that I'm doing. How does that work? And so oftentimes I'll use an illustration to explain more clearly this difficult dynamic between our work and God's work by saying it's like a sailboat. If you're on a sailboat and there are no sails up, then you're a bad sailboat person. Whatever, what's the name for that? I don't know. Sailor. Yeah. How about that? That's clever. You're a bad sailor. So if you don't put your sails up and you don't do the work, it doesn't matter if the wind is blowing very much, you're not going to go very far or very fast. On the other hand, if you have your sails up and there is no wind, you're not going anywhere either. So therefore, our growth in the Christian life is often put up your sails and pray that God's spirit will blow and that wind, wherever it pleases, will find its way on your boat. Does that make sense? That's a good illustration. At least I like it. Hopefully it's helpful helpful for you. That's not what Jesus is doing with parables. It's almost the exact opposite as we go through this text to see he is not telling good illustrations to his sermon points. The parable is the sermon. All in and of itself, it's the point, it's the illustration, and it's the application all in one thing. Secondly, parables are not simple or obvious. I don't know how many times people say, we need to be more like Jesus in our teaching. I've been seminary trained and been in institutions that teach you how to preach the Bible, and and you'll hear things like this in those settings. Well, pastors, you need to learn how to tell good stories like Jesus did so that people understand your sermons better. False. That's not why Jesus told these stories and parables. It was not so that you would understand the story's simple and obvious point. Notice that in our text, in Matthew chapter 13, the disciples in verse 10 say, why are you speaking in parables? And then look at verse 18. Jesus then has to explain the meaning of the parable. Here then, let me explain to you what the parable of the sower is. Then if you fast forward, you'll notice that in verse 36, then he left the crowds and went into the house, and his disciples came to him saying, can you explain to us the parable of the weeds and the field? And then Jesus has to answer him. If you're doing a good illustration, you shouldn't have to explain the illustration a second time to be like, all right, so here's the point, and here's the illustration. Now, here's the point of the illustration. Like, that's what happens when you watch Tree of Life. You need, like, a commentary of the movie and be like, okay, so that's why that happened, and then that's why that happened, and then there's still that, like, modern art thing where you're like, yeah, and then nobody knows why that's happening. Jesus is not doing this in order to make a simple, obvious, clear point. If it was so, then why did the disciples, his own people, not get it? Well, they were bad illustrations. Or maybe that's not what it was all about to begin with. Furthermore, it is not about moral stories that are primarily about how you should live. Parables are not about 
moral little lessons or stories for you to read. Oh, here's a simple, obvious point. Oh, now I should be more generous. Not what parables are. At least these parables. The parables are about the kingdom of God. The kingdom of heaven. Look at verse 31. The kingdom of heaven is like a grain of mustard seed. This refrain happens again and again. Look at verse 44. The kingdom of heaven is like. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like in verse 45. Verse 47. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like. What are parables for? Why does he use them? What are they about? To explain the kingdom of God. They are about what God is doing in the world. More specifically in this time in history. It is not just a quick little story for you to read and be like, oh, that's a good little lesson for us today. It is a lesson for you after you first figure out how it was a lesson for them when Jesus spoke it. So often we read the Bible so lazy, like really lazy. Just read it and be like, okay, this is how it applies to me. No, how did it apply to them? What's Jesus saying in his day? Then how does it apply to you? And then it will have much more richer, fuller meaning. Don't skip that step. When we do that with parables, we make them all about us instead of the kingdom of God. One author writes it this way. When we recognize the parables are not moral stories in general, but are commentaries on the situation of Jesus, his disciples, and the Jews of his time, they then tell us about Jesus' ministry and its effects. These are commentary illustrations and metaphors of the life and ministry of Jesus. They're not primarily first to you. It's only after you see what Jesus is saying about him and his kingdom, then you'll see how that changes you. Lastly, parables are not the first way that Jesus taught and preached. The reason I gave you that quick recap of Matthew's gospel is so that you recognize that it is not till here that we first really get a heavy dose of parables from Jesus. So a misunderstanding about Jesus and his teaching is that all he did was tell stories. No, primarily it seemed like he announced the kingdom of heaven is here. The kingdom of God is in your midst. Repent and believe the good news. Here's what that looks like. Read the Sermon on the Mount. Maybe you'd find little illustrative stories here or there toward the end, but primarily it's, no, you've heard it said, but I say to you. And he's speaking pretty straightforward, propositionally. It's not just a bunch of stories all over. Jesus is speaking very plainly in the first portion of his ministry, and then chapter 12 comes. Opposition. People giving him deaf ears, blind eyes, calling him Beelzebul. You're not healing that person by the power of God, but by the power of Satan. Rejection happens in chapter 12, and since the rejection, Jesus says, I'm teaching different from here on out. Missing that point is crucial to understanding Matthew's biography and really the parables to begin with. So what are the parables? I think the simplest way to define them is they're like riddles. They're not clear on the surface what is being said. And you have to think about them for a while. You have to like let it mull over and figure it out. And there's meaning to various elements. R.T. France, a scholar and 
commentator of Matthew says, parables are an utterance which does not carry its meaning on the surface and which thus demands thought and perception if the hearer will benefit from it. Learning from and responding to a parable is not a matter of simply reading the meaning of the words, but entering into an interactive process to which the hearer must contribute if true understanding is to result. That is why the same parable which will enlighten one may puzzle or even repel another. A parable is not an easy option for understanding, but it is a challenge to which not everyone will be able to rise. The one quote in there that I want to make sure I repeat again that you get is parables are an interactive process to which the learner must contribute for true understanding to result. Do you see how that helps solidify what I was saying earlier about it's not just some little illustration where I'm cutting up the steak for you and saying, here you go, eat it. It's no, here's a slab of meat, chew on this for a while. See the difference? Jesus is throwing out a slab of meat and there is such profound nutrients and substance in his teaching in these parables that it is far beyond just some little truth about being good or doing this. It actually changes and transforms you as you're interacting with it. Or as Ken Bailey, who has written a long, extensive work on poet and, par- and parables, he says, parables are metaphors, not an illustration of a propositional idea, what we just talked about, but rather parables are a mode of theological discourse. The metaphor does more than just explain meaning. It creates meaning. A parable is an extended metaphor, and as such, it is not a delivery system for an idea, but it is the very house to which the reader and listener is invited to take up residence. It is not a delivery system for an idea, but it is the house in which you and I are to take up residence, sit a while, and chew on it until we've finally digested that thick cut of meat. In other words, you're supposed to experience it. This is the reason why I started the service with Tree of Life. Terrence Malick is supposed to be, whether you like it or not, and it's for you or not, he's supposed to be the master at not you observing, but experiencing his movies. That's why there's such little dialogue, and that's why it's just you observing and getting caught up in what he's doing, that you're supposed to be just overtaken by the cinema. It's like reading poetry or abstract modern art. Have you ever been to an art museum and just been like, look, if that's what you were trying to communicate, you could have done it a whole lot more simple. And then the artist is like, then they would miss the point. The point is for you to stop and say, what's really going on here? And that experience is what they're going for. So yes, I am comparing Jesus to a modern abstract artist. Let me give you an example. A very well-known parable Luke chapter 15, the story of the prodigal son. How many of you left off the S at the end? Matthew, I mean Luke chapter 15 begins this way in verse 1. And there were crowds of people around Jesus. In the crowds there were some tax collectors, some sinners, and then there was the religious Pharisees. And then he goes on to tell a series of parables and the final concluding one, which drives his point home, which you're to experience, is that there's two sons. Both are prodigals. Which one are you? Are you like the tax collector sinner 
Or are you like the religious hypocrite that's standing afar off and saying, oh, what is my dad doing? Giving the fattened calf for that rebellious son. You're supposed to experience it. And Jesus drops the mic as like this cliffhanger and just ends the story with the son being pleaded to, the older brother son being pleaded to by the father, come home. It's an invitation for those Pharisees in that group, come. Come home. The father has lavish love for both sons. It's an experience. It's the same as the very popular parable of the Good Samaritan. It gets to the very end of the story and says, so who's the neighbor? And at that point, the knife just goes, oh, oh, because it's the Samaritan, the hated enemy of the Jewish people. It's an experience, a house to which you dwell. That's what parables are not and what they are. So why did Jesus use them? That's question number two. Why use the parables? Let me read the text again, and let's work through a few things he says, make some comments, and then we'll close with our last question. So here, in point two, we're going to see that Jesus is going to hammer in on these points in verses 10 through 17. Then the disciples came and said to him, why do you speak to them in parables? So that's our question. He answers them, to you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been given. For to the one who has, more will be given, and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. This is why I speak to them in parables, because seeing they do not see, and hearing they do not hear, nor do they understand. Indeed, in their case, the prophecy of Isaiah is fulfilled that says, you will indeed hear but never understand, and you will indeed see but never perceive. For this people's heart has grown dull, and with their ears they can barely hear, and their eyes they have closed, lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their heart and turn, and I would heal them. But blessed are your eyes, for they see, and your ears for they hear. For truly I say to you, many prophets and righteous people longed to see what you see and did not see it, and to hear what you hear and did not hear it. I want to make just three observations from this text to answer this question, why use parables? First observation is this. Jesus teaches in parables in order to hide his message from those who refused to listen to him. Jesus uses parables to hide, to conceal to not be clear, to get up and say, there's a farmer, and he sowed some seed. If you have ears to hear, let him hear. And then he sits down. He's done. I mean, he was already sit seated in a boat, but like he gets out of the boat. He, he leaves. He, he rows off. Like, he's done the parable. That's it? And then the disciples are like, what are you doing? What was that just now? That's what I wanted you to feel as I'm sitting on that chair in the front row. And he'd be like, what in the world is Pastor Phil doing? That's the experience. Hiding. Not clear. What's going on? And there's a reason for it. It's judgment. These people have closed off their ears to Jesus and they don't want to hear what he has to say. They're seeing him, but they're not seeing him. As a husband, I sadly know this truth all too well. My wife is talking. 
I might be on my telephone, I might be watching something, I might be distracted in a nice, thick theological book, and she's talking, and then she says, so what do you think, honey? And I go, at this point, I've got a decision to make. I either tell her, I was not listening to a word you were saying, or I say, yeah, that sounds good, and have no idea what I just committed myself to. Have you ever been hearing, but never really hearing? These people were hearing Jesus, but they were not hearing Jesus. The Hebrew word behind this concept is listen. The Shema word that hearing and listening demand obedience. It's like when I tell my children, when I want them to do something, go clean your room, and then they don't clean their room, and I come back to them, and I say, didn't you hear me? It wasn't, did you audibly have noise come into your ears with frequencies? I'm asking, did you obey? Did you listen to me? That's the concept that's being spoken of in these texts. And Jesus is telling them, listen, they are not listening. And because of that, I am not going to be clear to them anymore, just like Isaiah was commissioned and called to talk to a stiff-necked, tough people. So this is where you need to know Isaiah, and it takes a lot of background work, and this is why the Bible is sometimes complex, because they're quoting authors from five, seven hundred years ago. And so in this case, Jesus is quoting Isaiah and says, listen, I openly proclaimed the kingdom of heaven, but after a while, Israel has resisted the call of repentance, and so therefore, I'm going to talk in riddles just like Isaiah. I'm going to create division. By speaking in parables, he further divides those who really want to hear Jesus and those that are like, that dude's crazy. I'm not listening to him anymore. The parables actually create the division that he's talking about of some will have the secrets of the kingdom and some will not. Jesus justifies this by saying, I am fulfilling the prophecy of Isaiah. If you remember when Paul came up here and read our scripture reading from Isaiah 6, Isaiah is told to proclaim to these people because it is a prelude. It is like a foretaste. It is a warning of further destruction that will be much greater. The actual passage in Isaiah 6, to repeat it to you again, is cities are going to be devastated without inhabitants, houses without people, and the land will be utterly desolate. You will preach until that happens. And you will preach in this manner with people that will not listen. But then Isaiah chapter 6 ends by saying the Lord will save a stump, a remnant that will be saved from this judgment and this burning. Otherwise, the entire nation would be destroyed. And so Jesus, in a similar way, is saving some who are going to get it, who are hungry. And those are the people, he says, the secrets of the kingdom are revealed to you. But to them, they're not. And they will be judged. And right now they're actually being judged by me not being clear to them anymore because they've had their chance and I have been patient and I have repeated and they have not listened. If that's not a lesson for you and for me today, I don't know what else is. How many people go to church for a long time to realize they have not been really listening? It is not for the lack of clarity at times but rather the hardness of our hearts. So we must understand that Jesus knew perfectly well what was going on and how to use these parables and that the Jews 
ultimately had the problem of the hardness of heart. Do you ever follow this example? Do you understand this in your own life? Whether you're parenting, whether you're trying to reach out to a friend or family member, have you ever clearly explained something to them and then be like, they did not get that. And then in your mind, you're thinking, you know what this problem is? The problem is I need to teach it to them clearer again. Maybe that wasn't clear. And so you try again, and then you try again. And then you just beat them down by just beating them with these truths until eventually they want nothing to do with you anymore. Parents, this happens all the time. The problem is not your lack of clarity. It is their hardness of heart. They need a transformed will and a transformed desire. This is why in our evangelism, there's time to just be like, listen, I'm going to just pray. And I'm going to love you. And I'm not going to keep beating you over the head with the Bible. I've made it clear. You've had your chance to respond. You obviously haven't responded yet. I'm going to be like Jesus and not necessarily keep pressing in over and over with clarity and our minds just needing to be enlightened further. The problem is the hardness of heart. The second observation I want to make is that Jesus' parables are bringing about this division as an effect. And this is something I've mentioned briefly, but think of these parables as like teaching with a sword. They're acts of judgment that create divisions within Israel. So in the parable that we're going to look at next week, Lord willing, Jesus talks about a sower sowing some seed. And he's talking to a large crowd. And by the end of it, it seems as if Jesus is left with just him and a small handful of his disciples. He only explains the parable we see in verse 10 and in verse 18 to his disciples. To some, it has been given by God to understand the mysteries of the kingdom. But to others, it is not being given by God. The parables do not just talk about an inside and outside group. It creates those groups, and therefore it divides like a sword. Those who come to Jesus seeking explanations are the ones who receive the mysteries, the ones that are hungry, the ones that say, wait, what was that about? I want to hear you out. I really want to make sure I get what you're saying. Is that a helpful thing for you to understand in your own Bible reading? I read that, and like, I just didn't get it. Oh, well. Let's just forget that whole Bible reading thing and Bible studies and community groups because like, that just was confusing. I don't really want to have to work, and that's going to take some work. Well, apparently, Jesus' words are not that precious to you. And he could cut them up in little steak bites every day and just give them to you, and every day you wake up and be like, oh, that was glorious. But there's going to be a lot of times when we interact with God's Word and you're not going to understand what it's saying. Both the written text and also those impulses to the heart or the experiences in the natural world. Be like, God, what are you doing here? And those who are true disciples will be those who are hungry to ask, what are you doing, Jesus? Come to Him in prayer. Bow before Him humbly and not ask as if, well, I demand a clear, immediate explanation right now, just this minute. Maybe the experience of you waiting is part of the whole process to begin with. So the reason the disciples don't understand Jesus and his parables, I think is also foreshadowing the very closely related misunderstanding as to why he tells them, I must die on a cross. 
if these parables are ultimately parables that help explain the ministry and message of Jesus, then every week for the next few weeks as we go through Matthew 13, you should be able to see echoes and messages of this is why I came. I will be the seed that goes into the ground and dies. And I must die in order for there to be a giant harvest, a hundred times more than you could ever dream or imagine. You want more of that? Then come back next week. So parables not only talk about inside-outside, they create the inside-outside group, and you will know if you're inside or out by whether or not you are hungry and determined and have a desire to say, I want to hear what Jesus has to say. The last thing I want to make observation from this text, which will lead into our third question. What are they revealing? Look at the last lines of verses 16 and 17. But blessed are your eyes. Blessed is that word that we looked at in the Sermon on the Mount, You have the good life. Man, you've got it going on. Your eyes can see, your ears can hear. For truly I say to you, many prophets and many righteous people long to see what you see, and they did not see it. And hear what you hear, and did not hear it. The third observation of why Jesus uses these parables is because Jesus is hiding from some and revealing to those, and as he does so, He is blessing them with something that they have never seen. He is revealing mystery would be the simple way to put it. Jesus is revealing to them the mysteries of the kingdom of God. And so we might look at this text and maybe this sermon and feel like, wow, Jesus used parables as an act of judgment? And this kind of sound of like glass half empty kind of sermon? like negative and not so chipper and happy. But in fact, I do think there is a giant takeaway for all of us. Blessed are any of you who can see it. Because there is a mystery that's being revealed in these parables and in the ministry of Jesus. And if you have seen it, if you have tasted it, you have the good life right now in your midst, experiencing it now because you're experiencing the very presence of God. In other words, question three of this sermon, what are these parables revealing? What mysteries are being talked about? What secrets? The word mystery might be a bit mysterious to us because it might suggest that something is obscure, unfathomable, whereas what seemed to be saying is that there is a divine message that is not necessarily obscure or mysterious, but rather it's being unveiled. And if it's being unveiled in the ministry of Jesus and you see that, then you see. And so that's what the concept of secret and mystery is about. Secret sometimes is a word used here to translate this word mysterion. It's a secret in the sense that it is now accessible to those that get it. So do you get it? G.K. Beale has written a long, lengthy book on this entire topic. Here's the quick summary of it. The mystery of the kingdom of God that all the parables will reveal 
is that Jesus Christ is establishing heaven here on earth already now, but not yet. Not yet fully, but already now. Heaven is invading earth through the ministry and message of Jesus, and every one of his parables is going to announce the kingdom of heaven is here. It's now. Forgiveness of sins is had now. Healing, it can be had now at times. Hope of resurrection life is already here now. Jesus already rose from the dead. New communities and societies of the Israel that was once supposed to be as they followed the Torah, they can be churches and communities that really love God and love one another because he's going to put his spirit on people's heart and write the law on their hearts now already. If you've tasted and seen and experienced any of that, then it's as if you have had a mystery or a secret revealed. You know it already. It's simply, do you receive Jesus? The message of his life, his death, his burial, his resurrection, his ascension, and his one day return to establish that heaven on earth reality forever. Do you believe that that is in fact the story of the whole Bible and what every one of these parables is telling us? Experience that. See yourself in that. Has the mystery been revealed to you? Do you hunger for it? To peek ahead again next week, the parable of the sower, we're going to get to a point where you need to ask yourself, which one am I like? And it's supposed to sit with you? Am I like the seed here that's experiencing the abundance? I'm in Christ. Christ is the seed, and I'm experiencing the fullness of his joy Or am I like one of these other seeds? So the question for us is, have we seen and really perceived? Have we heard and really understood that the kingdom of heaven is here now? It can be had now. And all you have to do is receive. Let's close in prayer. Our Father in heaven, we come to you with great thanks for this word. Not only the word of this teaching about parables, but we thank you for you being a God who reveals yourself to us humans. Thank you for the ways you've revealed to yourself through creation. Through the sun, moon, and stars, through the plants and animals, through every little interaction we have. The creations are declaring your glory, and we thank you, God, that you've revealed yourself to us in the world. But we especially thank you that you have revealed yourself to us in your Son, Jesus Christ. We thank you that it is clear, not obscure, not hidden. The mystery has been solved. The riddle has been figured out. God's work in the world is Jesus the Christ. God, thank you. Thank you that we don't have to leave here today and wonder. I wonder what the mystery is. What a delight and a joy to know that you are a God who is clear. And you want your message to be clear. So God, we ask now that all of us would receive that message clearly understandably, and we receive it by faith. In Jesus' name we pray.
Amen.